You're listening to the Moving Fast Tech Podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm Anka Corbin, your host on this Moving Fast Tech Podcast. I'm really excited today to introduce you to Evan Harris. Evan's the CTO at TermScout. It's a legal technology company focused on reviewing and comparing the fairness of software contracts as compared to the market, so as companies compared to each other, which is incredibly helpful. Evan has an extensive background in machine learning and AI, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Evan, welcome, and thank you very much for joining me on the Moving Fast Tech podcast and sharing your thoughts. Yeah, thanks, Anka. I'm excited to be here. I'm ready to chat. All right. Um, I always tell everyone so that the Moving Fast Tech podcast is kind of this free-flowing format where I'm going to ask you a couple of questions, but it's really up to you where you'd like to take this discussion. So let's get started. My first question is that, so pretty much every progressive software technology company claims to be developing some sort of machine learning or AI components and, you know, marketing teams are making, you know, like a really big buzz around it. And we know there's a lot going on, but there's also um, kind of this disconnect between what the reality is and where AI is practically today and, of course, where we think it's going to go. So what's, what's real? What can AI not do? What's really practically what's working today? Yeah, that's a great place to start. So here's a couple things I um, think about and look for when I'm considering whether you know machine learning is going to be uh, practical in any given use case or applications, and then I can give um, some examples. So uh, the first thing you want to look for is like, are there a lot of examples that you have um, that you can feed machine learning to learn from? If you're trying to do something that um, you know is is predicting something really rare or a case where you don't have a lot of clear examples, you can give. Um, algorithms to learn from, you know, machine learning is going to have, have trouble being really practical. Um, and the second is context. So machine learning works really well when most of the context that you need uh, to make a decision or a prediction is contained in whatever the machine learning gets to look at in real time when, when it's making the decision. So if you think about it, you know, as, as a human, um, uh, when you're trying to predict uh, something or make a decision, um, what are you looking at? Is it an image? Is it a block of text? Is it some, some tabular data in Microsoft Excel? Um, is that enough data for, for you to make the decision as a human? You know, and that's the only data you're giving, gonna give to machine learning. Um, you know, if, if it's not, um, the machine learning probably isn't gonna have enough context. So, so those are some high level principles that, that I think of. Um, some examples of, of where this is going really well today in business and, and, and things that, that I've worked on myself in my career are things like product and content recommenders. So we've all been users of these in, in apps like Netflix and Amazon, um, when there's a, a for you or a recommended section. Um, applications in, in digital marketing optimization and personalization, um, anything around tagging, flagging, or, or categorizing images, videos, and text. Um, and then things like fraud detection and banking, you know, you know, flagging fraudulent transactions. These are all um, really common applications that uh, you know really cut through the hype, and um, machine learning practitioners are are you know adding serious value to the businesses that they work in uh, um, using using technology. That makes a lot you of know, sense. Totally, and and um, yeah, I can give another example of where you know machine learning and AI 
would have trouble um, today. This is things like making decisions in really you know, specific one-of-a-kind scenarios. So um, strategic business decisions is one. So like, let's say you know, I'm a tech startup and I tell you, I've got an app where you, you can describe any business problem that you have you know, in like 500 words. It, it can be really esoteric, um, really specific to your domain and to your business. And our app will respond instantly and tell you what to do. We'll tell you how to solve your business problem. And maybe their marketing language says, you know, it's claiming to use AI to replace your advisory board or to replace your management team. This, this is something you want to be skeptical of. You know, um, it, it's really one of a kind decision-making. You're not, it's not going to be able to have a lot of examples to, to learn off of because, um, you know, this is a, um, it's really specific to your business. And it doesn't have a lot of context, you know, 500 words, it, it, you might need to know a little bit more than, than that to make strategic business decisions. So that's an example where um, you think about strategic um, decision-making, you're like intelligence, you know, um, uh, data, these are all important, but, but it's not exactly the kind of thing that, that we're using machine learning to do today. Right. So that actually reminds me of the, you know, the fear of, of, these positions going away that it's definitely not today that's definitely not happening from what you can tell yeah yeah i mean like i, I don't think there's there's like the that your your ceo is going to become an ai bot um, right. anytime soon you know maybe sometime in the future but that that you can think of that stuff as like very very human um decision making where, where you just need to um observe quite a bit about the world um and have quite a lot of expertise to make that decision um and you can't just train something to do by by giving it a lot of data. Absolutely. So because we have mostly software engineers and technology leaders um, listening to this podcast, what are some of the key programming languages or frameworks that are being utilized in developing machine learning and AI today? Yeah, so in terms of programming languages, Python is, is ubiquitous. If you wanted to get into applied machine learning, Python's a really great place to start. And you know, while it's an extremely popular programming language, it's really just the foundational layer for the more specific packages and frameworks that have really come to dominate in, in um, applied machine learning. So these are things like NumPy, Pandas, and SciPy for, for data wrangling and stats. There are things like Scikit-Learn for traditional machine learning. And then for some more advanced um, applications, uh, you've got Keras and TensorFlow and PyTorch for deep learning. So again, these are all Python packages. They're extremely common. You'll see them on resumes and job descriptions. And uh, uh, they, they're, again, quite common throughout the industry. Um, then in terms of like machine learning ops, which is you know, ML ops, as the, as the term has been coined um, more recently, similar to DevOps and software engineering, you get these additional services like SageMaker, um, which is an AWS service, and, and quite a number of, of startups that are getting into the um, machine learning ops uh, space, you know, these are frameworks you start to learn in addition to just the programming languages that you really need to facilitate large-scale model training, deployment, monitoring, maintenance. And there's a ton of these. They're popping up all over the place. And to be honest, it's kind of challenging to keep up. I don't mm -hmm. always keep up with them uh, myself. Uh, there's so many startups in this space. Basically, you've probably seen some of the marketing language out there, you know, Bringing, bringing, bringing machine learning, you know, to every enterprise or, or, mm -hmm. or small companies and, and making it really easy to, you know, deploy large scale machine learning like, like big tech does. And it's hard to keep up. Um, and, and my best advice is just to um, 
not identify too strongly with these frameworks or, or, or build your career too much around one or the other, because because they're going to change. They'll be different at different jobs that you have. And just just getting good at coming up to speed um, on these newer frameworks is, is going to be the best bet to be to be a successful machine learning practitioner. You know, you've shared the, the languages and frameworks, but what about some of the other types of skills that make engineers you know, really effective in machine learning and AI? Are there some characteristics that you would say are pretty common and that you would really want to develop or just naturally have? Yeah, totally. So there's so many different ways for engineers to be effective in machine learning. So I think it's really important um, and, you know, a good opportunity to talk about just uh, discovering what kind of machine learning practitioner you want to be, um, because that's going to, they're going to acquire different skills, uh, soft skills and, uh, and hard skills. And so um, we can talk a little bit about, about each. Um, for instance, uh, what, what I've been in my career and, and a lot of who, who I hire are applied machine learning engineers. You know, this is when you're solving specific problems with machine learning, you're, you're applying open source techniques to solve business problems. Um, and this is what I think is the more popular and accessible path um, and, and the one I've taken. And, and the skills here, um, you know, are really around programming and cloud engineering, around machine learning skills and business and domain knowledge. Um, and you can even be lighter on, you know, having deep theoretical knowledge of, of, of mathematics and still be like really successful here, particularly um, if you're just a creative, ambitious and, and, and um, uh, motivated individual who just wants to add value to the business that you're working in. It's really important uh, to think in that way when you're working at at startups and a lot of the places that are hiring applied machine learning uh, folks that they're less focused on, you know, um, uh, theoretical research and more focused on on, on applying um, machine learning to solve real problems mm -hmm. um, in their businesses. Um, alternatively, you can be like a machine learning researcher, which this is when you're you know you're working as an academic or you're in an R and D department in, in like big tech, and it's totally different skills. Here you're, you might be developing novel machine learning algorithms, and your skills are going to be way less heavy on kind of, you know, be, being scrappy to quickly solve problems in a business and way more on, on, you know, the math and stat skills. And you might need an advanced degree for this. So this is like, you know, in terms of where you acquire these, these skills for a machine learning researcher, you know, um, higher education institutions, um, as opposed to as an applied machine learning engineer, you can often learn a lot on your own in, in boot camps, um, on YouTube, et cetera. Um, so, um, you know, there are two different paths to think about, and I suggest like people think hard about which path, because mm -hmm. like I said, like really different skill sets, really different types of individuals get go down these paths. Well, in different education paths, right? If you have to have a PhD in, um, research and that sort of thing, that's a totally different path than, um, the applied machine learning and AI. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I've I, I don't have a PhD, and and I and I, I've led um, pretty decent sized machine learning teams with without folks with PhDs on the team, and, and mm -hmm. it just depends on it just depends on what what your what your goal is and what you're working on, um, right. and it, and it's totally important to understand which one you want to be. What about some of those soft skills you had talked about? Yeah, so um, I can dig a little deeper on that kind of you know appetite for solving business problems with machine learning. You know, a lot of that comes with communication skills, project management skills. Um, you know, it's a uh, new and um, quickly changing discipline of applied machine learning. And there aren't as many um, 
well-worn paths on, on like how to manage a project, how to work with stakeholders, et cetera. And so just, just being a great communicator is a huge leg up, um, especially when a lot of folks in the space are, are heavier on the quantitative skills. You know, this is similar in, in uh, other disciplines in technology, but, you know, can't stress enough those, those communication skills and, and ability to describe what you're doing in, in accessible terms to the folks that you're working with. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. We, you know, you were actually saying, you were just talking about some of the things that are a little tougher and just developing super fast. And in one of those areas I'm curious about is testing. So can uh, machine learning and AI components be tested? The, because the behavior evolves so quickly as it learns, how does test automation cope with the learning or is it primarily being tested manually? And then also what does, you know, kind of what role does the human intellect play in evaluating what's good and what's not good? Yeah, so ML components can definitely be tested and, and all the traditional software techniques, unit testing, integration test, testing, and best practices, these are gonna totally apply to a lot of the, the code and infrastructure surrounding um, building and deploying machine learning in practice. Um, but as you know, the models themselves are tested manually quite a bit. So, so in my experience, um, it's, it's rarely the case that you're, you're gonna just solely rely on quantitative validation metrics um, uh, from, from a, a training experiment when you're deciding whether or not to first deploy your model into the wild, into an application. Um, it, it's super easy to get fooled, uh, especially when you're first starting out with, with really promising quantitative validation metrics for your model when, when in reality, maybe, maybe you made a mistake in setting up your training job um, or, or you're not quite thinking about the problem set up right. This happens all the time. It happens to me all the time. It happens with the teams that, that I work with uh, uh, and lead. Um, and so I really think like it's the job of the machine learning practitioner to pretty relentlessly look for what might not be going right, um, especially when you see really high validation metrics, like you're training a model and it says it's 99% accurate, especially if you expect that it's going to be a pretty hard problem to solve, you know, uh, that manual testing and kind of human intuition and really looking under the hood um, is a manual process. And it's a big part of, of training machine learning models um, is that kind of uh, uh, sniff test that you might have when, when something doesn't feel quite right. So, so quite a bit different than, than traditional software development. That's what I thought, right? That makes a lot of sense. Um, I want to ask you one of my favorite questions. I think it's actually one of the more interesting ones and also fairly challenging. And that's the whole concept of ML and AI ethics, right? So if it's playing a role in decision making, which it's probably more and more so, how do you recognize biases? How do you look at the value and the cost of replacing people, which we had talked a little bit about before, or the, you know, long-term benefits for users versus profits and the whole thing around censorship. And I mean, there's some amazing topics and I'm sure you explore these all the time. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, ethics should totally play a role in decision-making hundred percent. Um, I think about it just kind of like how I think about, um, any other technology application, um, you know, machine learning or otherwise, because I think, you know, traditional software can be, can be biased, you know, in illegal or explicitly malicious ways. 
uh, or accidental ways. It, it can make the wrong trade-offs. It can, traditional software can replace people and censor people, you know. Um, so all this happens in other areas of technology. And, and I think machine learning is just a different, um, yet probably more nefarious manifestation of that because it's, you know, often applied at a large scale and it's really uh, quite a bit less transparent um, how machine learning makes decisions than how, you know, the logic in, in a traditional software application would make decisions. So I think it's really up to the practitioner to assess the impact of, of building any technology. Um, but uh, I, I do think it can um, be more challenging with machine learning. Like for instance, machine learning just hides biases in, in ways that create unique challenges. Mm -hmm. Like the rules that machine learning models learn from data to make decisions are really opaque in a lot of ways. You know. They're, they're hidden in linear algebra and neural network math. Like that's where actual decisions that affect people's real lives live. Um, where like when you're writing traditional software applications, the rules are more like in, in conditional statements and they're a little more clear if you're, you know, doing something biased, maybe explicitly, you know, illegal or wrong or um, something like that. Like it's a little more hidden, hidden with machine learning and, and, can it oftentimes be quite accidental um, in terms of introducing bias. Um, so at the end of the day, I think it's really up to everyone involved in an ML application from the machine learning experts to the product managers to um, the executives at the company. You know, all of these people, regardless of their um, expertise in machine learning, have the ability to think about the impact of, of what you're building and you know, need to think about and measure in a top-down way, like um, what the impact of an application um, that you're building might, might have on the world. And then it's up to those individuals to decide whether or not it meets the values of, of their institution. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that's just going to evolve over time as well? That maybe what was okay at the early phase, now all of a sudden there's this recognition that, well, well maybe we need to, you know, adjust it or is there harm being done at some point or and not even just harm but just recognizing that there may be biases built in or that the machine learning itself is bringing in different biases right yeah yeah i think i think um definitely as conversations get broader and more common in, in the the media and elsewhere you know people focus on it quite a bit more and maybe a time a while back where you might kind of say like oh like well we didn't intentionally introduce the bias but the, the algorithm learned it from the data so it's not really our fault. You know, that kind of attitude, I think, I think is a gone by the wayside. Mm -hmm. And it's more like, well, regardless, you know, um, if your machine learning application is reinforcing bias that it learned from historical data, you know, intentionally malicious or not, um, uh, you're, you're responsible for, for trying to figure that out and mitigate it. That makes sense. It's such an interesting topic, isn't it? Yeah, totally. And, and it's, uh, something that brings in a lot of new perspectives and, and voices into thinking about the stuff aside from, you know, mathematicians or, or computer scientists. And it feels like, and, and I know that you had mentioned then traditional software, there's also room for all of these things, but the conversations that I have been noticing, there's more of that at the software development stage than I would say was in some of the, you know, I don't know that we thought about it as much um, in traditional software development than we are now. Agreed. And, and I think it, it, it's a lot because, you know, if you have a kind of if statement in your code explicitly that says, 
you know, um, exactly the way um, a decision is being made, you know, and, and that's, that's introducing bias, it's going to be pretty clear, mm-hmm. you know, um, whereas, like I said, if it's embedded deep in, in um, some, some uh, matrices of, of numbers, um, it, it's, it's harder it's to happening. find. And I think, I think that's why it's been um, discussed a lot more because uh, one, that, that's kind of like, you know, harder to detect. And two, it's, it's like interesting. It's like mm-hmm. fascinating how, how that happens. And, and um, I think it, it, it is an opportunity for a lot of creative people to, to think about how to solve. Yeah, I agree. And it's only going to get more and more interesting. That's for sure. You know, for CTOs, especially so leaders, tech leaders and others really that are maybe not specialists in ML or AI, do you have some suggestions for resources that you find helpful, you know, things that you read and pay attention to or things that might give ideas for how to manage teams or how to even evaluate teams, especially if that's not your specialty? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, my suggestion is to really read as much as you can about what machine learning practitioners, you know, are, are saying on the ground and what they need or don't need on the job. So um, easier said than done, especially if you don't work with uh, machine learning practitioners yet as a CTO, but um, a great place is, is like internet blogs, like on Medium and such, like a great blog you can check out is Towards Data Science, extremely popular, been around for a while. And you get a ton of machine learning practitioners blogging about just like, not only like wonky, you know, um, uh, algorithm type stuff, but but also how they work and, and how their mm-hmm. team is managed or how they manage a team. Um, what's similar to traditional software development and what's unique to machine learning application development. You know, hearing what these people have to say, I think is uh, is the best way you're going to learn as a leader, like what people need and, and what they don't need, and, and how that's different than what than what you're used to. And, and so. Other avenues for this are, you know, blogs on Medium are good, but also just like following machine learning and data science topics um, and, and thought leader type individuals on Twitter and LinkedIn and look at those discussions that people engage in. I mean, there's not like a great shortcut. I mean, it's a fast moving industry. Roles are loosely defined. Team management styles are really different. And, you know, there's just a lot less um, well-worn paths than there are um, in more established parts of technology. So, so it's a challenge. And I think hearing what people are saying in, in you know, semi real time is, um, the, the way I'd go about it and kind of what I do. Um, and, you know, in terms of thinking about building your teams and like who to hire, I think I really suggest for CTOs that are new to machine learning, but no, they need machine learning in their applications and need personnel to, to build it. Um, I really suggest reading as much as you can online, and there's a ton of ton of blogs out here um, out in the world that talk about this. But just reading about the different types of machine learning practitioners, we talked about it a little bit um, earlier, and making sure the first machine learning hire that you make is the right one. Mm-hmm. You know, if you hire that PhD researcher when when what you really need is, you know, just an ambitious software engineer who can like string together some APIs um, and cloud services. Uh, those are really really different. <laughs> And, mm-hmm. and depending on your business, you might need one or the other. And, and if you, you hire the wrong one, it's just a really bad start, bad setup, and, and no one's going to be really set up for success. So I think that's something that could trip CTOs up getting getting into building out machine learning teams and just really, really getting a good understanding, you know, as you're writing job descriptions, et cetera, um, uh, who is it that you really want to hire? That's great advice. And I have seen that. And it takes a little bit to really 
um, learn and figure out that maybe that wasn't the, you know, it was a misstart, if you will, and that you kind of have to figure it all out again. So pretty painful. Yeah, yeah, it's an expensive misstart. And especially sure. if you're like me, early stage CTO, you know, um, it's, uh, you don't have a ton of a ton of room for that. So mm-hmm. doing some doing some research up front, um, I think it is is really valuable there. Really, really good advice. Awesome. I think this is a really fascinating topic, certainly lots more to learn. And I definitely appreciate your insights and your perspective. Evan, I want to thank you very much for sharing your experiences today. And I'm sure our listeners will find this conversation super interesting. I'm going to post when we write the blog, the resources that you had mentioned earlier, just so someone can then go and grab that. But it's just always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much for being my guest today. Yeah, of course. Thanks a lot, Anka. It was great to talk. Yeah, looking forward to listening to this. So for our listeners, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast channel and join us next time for another Moving Fast Tech podcast so you can hear from industry insiders like Evan about tech leadership challenges, the latest technology that they're considering, preparing their company for the future, and just other interesting tech topics. Thanks again, and we will see you next time. Bye.